The Way Out Podcast, episode 134. Hey, Way Out Podcast, it's your co-host Alex calling in. Uh, so this week I've uh, selected uh, one of my favorite speakers, and his name is Adam T. Um, this is honestly one of my favorite AA speakers that I've ever heard. Uh, mostly because there's uh, there's a lot of similarities that I've found uh, in his life as well as mine. And, um, you know, it... it He's somebody. It's a speech. It's a speech that I've listened to a number of times, both in early recovery and you know, even even still to this day, I enjoy it because uh, of the amount of wisdom and you know the experience, strength, and hope that Adam conveys. Luzman B is his name. He he uh, relates recovery and addiction to like cartoons. He talks about how. Everything is learned behavior. This particular talk is so profound in large part due to how Clancy so adeptly and intimately describes how life began to feel what I would be sober without a solution. For me, the 12 steps. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out. Sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of the Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow The Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Have a question or comment about an upcoming or previous show? Call us right now. Area code 218-382-1960. Call us anytime, day or night and leave us a message on whatever is on your mind. Maybe it's a previous episode topic or something that you're struggling with in your own recovery. Call us at 218-382-1960 and leave the Way Out podcast hosts a message and we could feature it on our next episode. That's 218-382-1960. Help us recover out loud. Last but certainly not least, make sure to check out altrecoveryrings.com for stunning rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. Along with Jason and Alex, I'm Charlie, and this week we bring you a special edition of The Way Out Podcast. Each one of us has hand-selected one of our favorite recovery talks to share with you in hopes you'll enjoy them at least as much as we do. What these speakers have in common 
is rather instructive. They all inject a healthy dose of humor, vulnerability, honesty, and spiritual truth into their talks, and they all leave you feeling less alone and unfixable and more connected and full of hope that in fact there is a solution that provides us the relief we've all so desperately sought in drugs, alcohol, and other addictions. In the interest of time, each talk has been abbreviated, and I've provided links to the full talks in the show notes of this episode. I encourage you to listen to the rest of each one of these spectacular talks. They are worth every second of your attention. Prepare yourselves to relate, to laugh, and to reflect, my friends. Without further delay, we give you the Way Out Podcast's curated recovery speaker episode. Listen up. Hey, Way Out Podcast, it's your co-host Alex calling in. Uh, so this week I've uh, selected uh, one of my favorite speakers, and his name is Adam T. Um, this is honestly one of my favorite AA speakers that I've ever heard, uh, mostly because there's uh, there's a lot of similarities that I've found uh, in his life as well as mine. And, um, you know, it, it, he's somebody, it's a speak, it's a, speech that I've listened to a number of times, both in early recovery and, you know, even even still to this day, I enjoy it because uh, of the amount of wisdom and, you know, the experience, strength, and hope that Adam conveys. Uh, you know, it, he talks a lot about how, um, how you know, it, it in particular really saved his life and uh how he really had to get rid of a lot of people and uh had to actually make some good choices and uh instead of you know working his life around AA you know his life had to become AA and um I honestly find uh his story to be really inspiring to myself and um you know I I recommend this speech to any anybody who um who might be looking for, you know, a couple good laughs because, you know, I mean, there's a lot of serious stuff in there, you know, and despite all of that, he really finds a good way of keeping it light and, um, and, uh, you know, instead of focusing on the good, bad, and, uh, you know, on the ugly and the bad and the horrible things, he, he really, uh, finds a way to kind of show that, you know, hey, you know, there's beauty in suffering. There's beauty in, uh, in the horrible things that, uh, that we've done and it all, uh, it all works its way back to, you know, and it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter the, the things we've done. I mean, we can, we can actually have the life that we want to live. Um, but anyway, I hope you all have a wonderful Easter and, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Later. My name's Adam. I'm an alcoholic. Adam. I want to first uh, thank you for inviting me to come talk tonight. It's uh, always an honor and a privilege to be asked to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. Ultimately, it's a responsibility to give back what was so freely given to me. Uh, I want to welcome anybody that's new. You know, if you're trying AA one more time, if perhaps you don't think this will work for you, if you don't want to be here tonight, you know, if you think this is all a big misunderstanding. <laughs> Sorry it's come to this. 
I mean, I don't mean to be funny, but Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't on my to-do list. You know, I didn't get to AA because I had a bad weekend. I had a couple of bad decades. And for me, like a lot of us, this had to become a matter of life and death. Um, where I live in Southern California, Los Angeles, they give chips for, you know, 30, 60, 90 days. I think they do that everywhere. And I, I was one of those perpetual chip takers. I, I'm, I had so many chips and key tags, I, I could have played poker with them. Yeah, I mean, it was awful. I remember the secretary in one meeting saying, give them back. <laughs> you know, and I recycled through the rooms for 17 years. And I thank God for the unconditional love and the compassion of the old-timers who I remember saying, don't even bother taking chips, kid. Just sit in the back. Shut up. But they made it very clear to me that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous would continue to be open. And if and when I was ready to take actions in Alcoholics Anonymous, that AA would be there for me. And... Um, as a newcomer, I remember, you know, there was so much guilt and shame about being, you know, new. I, I, you know, doing that walk of shame over and over and over again as a newcomer. And I remember what I would do is I would go into your head and look back at myself and think, what a loser. My goodness, why can't you get this? What's wrong with you? And I know the old timers were judging me. You know, if you're new, we're judging we make bets right we're not that spiritual I mean think about it I love it when they say don't judge anybody in AA you guys hear that around here what do they tell you five minutes later stick with the winners right you hear a lot of contradictions in Alcoholics Anonymous that are not ne necessarily in our basic text, in the literature. I remember getting out of, you know, rehab, and my, my counselor says to me, he says, Adam, don't make any major changes in your first year. So I come to AA, get a sponsor. What does he tell me? You've got to change everything. <laughs> right? I was told, don't make any major decisions in my first year. You guys seen the third step? How about don't get in a relationship in your first year? That's a good one. No one knows if that works. No one's ever done it. <laughs> Maybe in this crowd. But there's a part that we read called We Are Not Saints. I tell people, if you got a halo, don't let it choke you. But the one I love is God doesn't give us more than we could handle. If that was really true, if I really believed that statement, then I wouldn't need God's help. And the longer I've been sober, the longer I've been separated from alcohol, the more I've come to terms with the fact that I absolutely do need God's help. I need your help. Help is the dirtiest four-letter word in these rooms. It was the hardest thing for me to really relinquish control and ask for help. And my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous is that AA has done for me what I could never do for myself. It's done for many of us here tonight what we could never do for ourselves. Collectively, as a fellowship and as a society, what I could never do. And, you know, the interesting thing about AA, you know, we, we talk about the steps as being how it works, 
Really, the traditions are why it works. And for many years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I wanted to change everything about AA. You know, my home group's the Marina Center in, in, in Culver City. And, you know, every week we get these new people that come in and they immediately want to change the format and, you know, change the way we run the group. And a couple months later, we never see them again. And I wanted to change everything about AA as a newcomer, too. And you know what? The longer I've been here, the more I want to keep Alcoholics Anonymous exactly the way it is. You know, the steps stop me from committing suicide. If you haven't noticed, the 12 traditions stop us from committing homicide. Oh, you don't believe it? Get involved in a business meeting. Or a committee. One of us doesn't work the steps, one of us dies, right? If we don't work the 12 traditions, we all die. And again, for me, like a lot of us, when Alcoholics Anonymous really became a matter of life and death for me, then I started to truly respect the thing that was saving my life. You know, you want to see some drama? Get between an alcoholic and a drink. Want to see some drama in my life? Get between me and Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I mean, for me as a newcomer, I, you know, looking back at it, there, what I would do is I, I, I used to come to meetings drunk. Now, the interesting thing about Alcoholics Anonymous these days is if you see somebody drunk in AA, the first thing people say is, oh my gosh, what's he doing here? <laughs> right? I mean, think about it. With the event of treatment, which swoops a lot of us up in our most desperate moments, Throws us into yoga class, craft hour, nature walks. What I would do is I would go to, we have these late night meetings in, you know, Los Angeles, Hollywood, 11.30, 12 at night. And I would go to 7-Eleven, get a big gulp cup, fill it up with liquor, put a little splash of Coca-Cola on top. Then I'd cruise into the late night AA meeting, do some of my best sharing. Looking for friends. And they weren't laughing. And then eventually I started going through treatment centers. And you know what? This is not a plug for treatment. But by the time I finally got sober, I'd gone through treatment 28 times. Not 28 days like the movie. This isn't Hollywood. 28 consecutive times. And I I remember telling my sponsor I went through treatment 28 times. I was hoping that would get rid of the guy, you know, loser. Go find someone that's willing. And he looks me right in the eye and he says, you know, Adam, that doesn't make you an alcoholic. And I thought, you're kidding. He says, no, it means you paid half a million dollars for a big book. I wasn't laughing at that either. I didn't think that was funny. You know, the big book's making a big comeback in AA. And I'm not going to start quoting pages tonight out of the big book. But page 101 of the big book says, Any scheme that attempts to shield the alcoholic from temptation is doomed to failure. See, treatment was a great place to fatten me up for another run. But treatment never solved the problem. And I always thought the problem was alcohol. And a friend of mine, he said, you know, Adam, that little bottle of Jack Daniels you got there, that little shot glass, that little drink, that little 12-pack, he said, if that's your problem, you're probably not an alcoholic. 
And then in the very next breath, he says to me, and if you are in fact an alcoholic, the type that's described in the doctor's opinion in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, your problem is an alcohol. And it took me another decade to understand what he was trying to tell me. Because for me, it was obvious I couldn't live with alcohol. Everyone could see that. From the time I was in junior high school, they call it middle school now. I mean, I'm in eighth grade. I'm already passed out under the bleachers, peeing in my pants, drooling on my desk. You know, my nickname was Space Cadet in eighth grade. I couldn't find homeroom. But see, the greater aspect of this disease for me as an alcoholic is not that I can't live with it, but really that I can't live without it. Not happily and not successfully. And what it really means for me to be an alcoholic is that I have a mind that somehow always takes me back to alcohol. A mind that always leads me back to a drink. I have a mind... A defiant mind, a mind that will argue with anybody about anything at any time. You tell me it's black, I'll tell you it's white. You tell me it's big, I'll tell you it's small. You tell me to go left, I'll go right with an attitude. And then I'll blame you for eternity. Defiance dogs my every step. You know, that's why we say denial is an acronym. It stands for don't even notice I am lying. Think about it. You could tell an alcoholic, but you can't tell him much. Right? You don't believe it? Try sponsoring somebody. (laughs) It's my nature. You can lead me into the gates of hell, but you can't push me into heaven. That's why Wilson talks about the tradition of attraction rather than promotion. For me, like many of us as an alcoholic, I had to come to AA on my own terms. I couldn't do it for anybody but me. You know what all the religions and treatment centers have in common? They all send their drunks to us. And I remember it like it was yesterday. That turning point for me... When I was, in, I was in one more treatment center, you know, I was 120 pounds. I, I was dying of alcoholism. I, I was broken. I was hopeless. I was dirty. You know, I'd let everybody down one more time. Remember that great feeling in detox? Some of you guys were probably just there. You know, and I, I'm sitting in the detox circle with my fellow associates. <laughs> You know, a vision for you. (laughs) And this woman from AA comes in, you know, on her H&I panel. Now, H&I in Southern California, I don't know if you have a similar committee here, but it stands for Hospitals and Institutions. And it's a committee of Alcoholics Anonymous that brings meetings into prisons and treatment centers and detoxes. So, you know, this woman's on her H&I panel and she's you know, talking to us in detox. And she looks us all up and down and she says, if I could give you all the gift of recovery, I wouldn't do it. And I looked at her and I looked at the guy next to me and I said, what a bitch. (laughs) And then she said something that would later change my life. She said, the reason I wouldn't give you the gift of recovery is because I wouldn't rob you of the journey. 
And you know, all of these years later, I understand that that journey to recovery, just like that journey to surrender, that each and every drunk has to walk, is personal. You know, and if you're new, we can't give you that. That intangible gift of desperation. Now, there's an acronym for you. A friend of mine said God stands for grow or die. He wasn't that soft and fluffy with me. You know, and I had to get to that turning point. A place in my life where my head can't get enough and my body can't take anymore. And then people like me die. And then I stop drinking and I have a whole other problem. Because now I got a body that can't process alcohol and I got a mind that can't process reality. And it always takes me back to a drink. So there I am in this place. And, you know, like I said, I know that nobody could give me that gift of desperation. It's almost like alcohol, as the big book says, was the great persuader. I had to have a relationship with booze. I had to get to that place of hopelessness. And, you know, my experience now is that I could write all day long on step one. Until I'd beaten down that liquor store door at 5 in the morning, 5.59, over and over and over again. Or paid the clerk at 7-Eleven after closing $100 for a six-pack. You know, or done a lot of the despicable, diabolical, disgusting things that many of us do on that journey to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. You think writing about it was going to help, my, help me see the truth? I had to have a relationship with alcohol. And, you know, if you're new, if you haven't noticed, we're the only people that want to reward because we ran out of a burning building. <laughs> think about it. You know, if you're feeling heroic because you gave up your big Thursday night to hang out with us, this is the only place on God's earth where they'll actually applaud because you came in to save your own life. <laughs> right? You know, I throw away my job, my house, my car, my relationship. You give me a little plastic chip and I'm supposed to be happy? So if you're sitting here thinking about drinking, that beats the heck out of being in a bar right now thinking about getting sober. Welcome to AA. If you're waiting for the miracle to happen, guess what? It might have already happened. You're here. You know, I know that for me, you know, my mom and my family are sleeping better tonight because I'm here. And if I lived to be a hundred years old, I could never pay Alcoholics Anonymous back for that freedom and the relationships and the love and the roadmap to spiritual success that I found because of Bill and Bob. You know, I want to welcome you again if you're new. I, um, I remember when I was new, my sponsor said to me, he said, Adam, I want you to buy a black suit. And I said, why? And he said, well, if you stick around Alcoholics Anonymous... It'll come in handy. Unfortunately, you'll go to a lot of funerals. And then he said something really nice. He said, oh, and by the way, if you drink again, at least we'll have something nice to bury you in. <laughs> he was mean. 
You know, but my experience today is that if you baby the alcoholic, you'll bury him. I needed to hear the truth about alcoholism. That it... That it was fatal, it was progressive, it was chronic. And I know a lot of people throw the, you know, the phrase out, don't drink no matter what. But, you know, in my mind, I think, why don't you join Nancy Reagan's merry band of winners and just say no? (laughs) When everything demands that I stand and deliver, I show up drunk. I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. I can't bring, like the big book says, into my consciousness with sufficient force the pain and suffering of a week or a month ago. I love it when people say, what's your drug of choice? I'm like, alcohol is my drug of no choice. I don't choose not to drink. I'm powerless. Yet when I become willing to take other seemingly unrelated actions, all of a sudden I have freedom from alcohol. And I really think in many ways that's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we talk about jails, institutions, and death. You know, that's kind of like hamburgers, fries, and a Coke. (laughs) You know, but I do a lot of service in detox centers. And, you know, there's this this language that you hear. It's, you know, a second language. It's called victimese. Like they just can't seem to realize that the the drinking bone connects to the detox bone. Or the jail bone. It's like a big leap for them. And I guess it was for me. That's why I have to continually stay in the middle of this thing. So I can stay really clear on the truth in my life about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that victimese thing that they have, it usually starts with, I lost everything. I'm like, I didn't lose anything. It was all drink coupons for me. You know, I know there's a relationship for me between willingness and surrender. And I see it in my life. They seem to be equally proportional. You ever notice you'll never see anybody more willing to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous than the guy that comes crawling through the back door of your, you know, your home group after a long, hard run? And he'll do anything, right? 90 meetings in 90 days. First day out of detox, he's got three sponsors. <laughs> right? He wants to take our whole coffee pot home with him. Doesn't even have a trunk to put in it. That's how we lose half our literature. And that same guy, 30, 60, 90 days later, is looking me right in the eye saying, you mean we got to go to meetings every day? And like a prize fighter, I throw in the towel, and then I I start to take the towel back one little piece at a time. I take my will back. And it's so interesting because you hear it in every meeting. People that do not recover, people that cannot or will not. And I look at my resistance, the thing that's blocking me from spiritual freedom. And you know what it is? It's another form of denial. Because we talk about admission. The opposite of admission for me is denial. But there's two kinds of denial for me. There's denial about the problem. But the greater aspect of denial for a drunk like me is about the solution. That these time-tested steps, this plan of action, this roadmap to spiritual success, it's not going to work for me. You know why it's not going to work for me? Because it wasn't my idea. 
Sound familiar? Like minds think alike. You know, and I really had to come to terms with what that willingness is. And I understand for me today that there is a relationship between the act of surrender and the state of surrender. The act of surrender is what got me into AA over and over and over and over again as a newcomer. But see, the state of surrender is a completely different concept. That's kind of like what's keeping the old-timers here. It's completely different. It's kind of like watching a swan glide across a pond of still water. It's so beautiful. So effortless. It's so graceful. But you know what's going on under the water, right? That swan's paddling like hell. And if you're new, if you haven't noticed, we have a chapter in the big book, Into Action. We don't have a chapter into feelings. (laughs) Go tell your therapist that. Right? We don't have a chapter into thinking. We ought to have a chapter into whining, right? From the podium. (laughs) At the noon meeting. No offense. I'm like, get a job, man. And for me, like a lot of us, I became willing to take actions in Alcoholics Anonymous that I did not believe in. I was asked by my sponsor and my home group to set aside everything I thought I knew about AA, about the 12 steps, about God, so I could have a new experience with this thing. Everything that I thought I knew about God, about myself, and about others. Because if you added up those three relationships, when I came to AA, if you took my relationship with God plus my relationship with self plus my relationship with others and you put an equal sign under it, it's simple math. You know what it equals, right? Detox! (laughs) Now, in the therapeutic community, there's a science called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's expensive, right? In AA, it's a buck. And it's one sentence. You can't think your way into right living, but you can live your way into right thinking. Very, very simple. Bring the body, the mind will follow. Now, for me, that was the hardest thing in the world to do. Because I couldn't set aside my old ideas. I couldn't let go of a belief system that I had established from the time I was a child. And it's so interesting because, you know, we have a a circle and a triangle, the three legacies of AA, recovery, unity, and service. And it's been revealed to me just from experience that that triangle, recovery, unity, and service, translates into three specific actions for me. Contribute, belong, and learn. Contribute is service. Belonging is unity. To learn is to uncover, discover, and discard what's blocking me. And the more that I sit in the center of that triangle and take those very simple actions, the more that I somehow feel wanted, needed, and loved in every area of my life. And if you're new, we can't give you that without taking the action. You know, I couldn't experience that until I was willing to take actions here that I didn't believe in. It's just that simple. If if there's a weight pile and I lift weights every day, am I going to get strong? It doesn't matter how I feel about it. What I think. And those simple actions in Alcoholics Anonymous eventually began to change my perception. 
All of my life, I predicated everything on how I felt. I don't feel like showing up for work. I don't feel like sitting in the front. I don't feel like taking commitments. I don't feel like being responsible. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to reverse that process. And by taking the actions, my thinking and eventually my feelings changed. And it's just that simple. Hey, how's it going, everyone? This is Jason. I'm just introducing this speaker tape. Uh, you know, we had the idea to put on speakers, speaker tapes for the, for the show this week, and I, I haven't really listened to a lot of recorded ones. I've seen a lot in person, and none of which I could find online. I tried to find a couple of them. But this one in particular, I can't even take credit for this was something that changed the life of Omar Pinto, the coast, the, or the host of uh, the Share podcast. And Omar loved it. He's, and, and so he shared it on his podcast one week. And I listened to it a few times. It was great. Hilarious, but moving. Um, the guy, Uzman D, is his name. He, he uh, relates recovery and addiction to like cartoons he talks about how everything is learned behavior right and that he watched a lot of tv growing up and he learned these lessons and it's actually really profound although very funny um the stories he tells about these cartoons um the lessons that he learned from them are really deep and they hit home so i hope you guys enjoy have a good one once again, I'm a recovering addict. My name's Usman. Thank you so much for hugging someone. Uh, sometimes it's tempting to think that everybody's going to get the same thing out of a message of recovery, but somebody, some people are here on the straight up new. So new they don't even speak sloganese yet. Right? But they may feel that hug. And uh, they said that uh, humility is a vital part of recovery. Defined is not me thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. So thanks for hugging somebody because you could, you know, addicts come from the never let you see them sweat school of life. <laughs> so you never know. You could be sitting right next to someone in searing, scorching, white-hot pain who really needed that hug, so thanks for hugging someone. I want to thank Almighty God for everything. I believe that God is the answer to every question. I thank God for cherishing me, for sustaining me, guiding me in my recovery, showing me how to live, His grace, His mercy, His unmerited favor. I want to thank Jordan and Reggie for asking me to come here this is a very nice convention. You know, oftentimes we, we, we've heard it said that uh, service is thankless. But it doesn't have to be, so let's thank anybody and everybody down to the hug squad who had anything to do with this convention. Give them a big round of applause. Mustafa 
and Andre for riding down here with me. Um, it's time for my disclaimer at this point. Um, I just don't want anyone to leave here and when asked, how was that uh, Saturday night fella, <laughs> Usman, how was he? Don't say words to the effect of, rarely have I heard such a beautiful exposition <laughs> of the vagaries of addiction, with particular emphasis on the Narcotics Anonymous modality of recovery, except for an apparent inability on behalf of the speaker to avoid the propensity to prolifically profanate his English. <laughs> In other words, in other words, our literature reserves the right for us to speak sometimes in what it describes as no uncertain terms. And if you're like me, and the disease of addiction put one of those no uncertain term ass whippings on you, <laughs> you may sometimes choose to describe it in appropriate terms. So if I curse you know already that I'm prone to do that. Okay? All right? Now, um, there was a woman, her name was Doc T. She was from Pittsburgh. Wonderful woman. She said, recovery is like sex. If you're not enjoying yourself, you're not doing something right. <laughs> She also said, recovery is like waking up in a burning house. If you wake up and the house is on fire, it really doesn't matter if your drug addict daddy started to blaze, or your codependent mama, or your child molesting sister. And don't stop to get in a relationship on the way out even, because some like it hot. <laughs> Your job is to get out of the house. Still, our third tradition says that it's important to tell your story for the newcomer. Very important to play your story nice and tight. And that's backed up by uh, our literature. I just want to read a couple of quotes. A couple of quotes. One is uh, both out of the flat book, The Step Working Guide. One is from page 114, and it says, Our active addiction no longer seems like such a tragedy and a waste, as we see how we can use that experience to serve a higher purpose Carrying the message to the addict who still suffers. And on page 91 in the flat book, it says, We start thinking of our past, specifically our addiction, as a gold mine of experience to share with people we're trying to help in recovery, instead of a period of darkness that we want to forget about. 
My point is that in recovery, the goal is to get free. So there's a free man before you, and I'm going to go back into the thrilling days of yesteryear a bit for you, take you with me into my gold mine of experience. <laughs> All right? And uh, explain to you how I got rid of the masks, because that's what we're here to talk about, how the masks have to go. Yes, sir. The masks have to go. And when I'm talking about how the masks have to go, I'm talking about the masks. I'm talking about masquerading. And I'm talking about masking agents. You know, you got some uh, pro athletes, right? And uh, they can't take performance-enhancing drugs, right? And some of them don't get caught because of the performance-enhancing drugs they're taking. They get caught because of the masking agents. That's why I'm here. I got here because of my masking agents. <laughs> I used a lot of masking agents to mask how I really felt. In the beginning, though, I was a very, very happy little boy. Still had God's breath on me. Lived every day in the identic state. Very much in touch with my birthright. I'm talking about a time in life when, when you could recall being happy for no particular reason type of happy. Before you were black happy, before you were white happy, just happy. I'm talking about that self-generated happy that just welled up from deep down inside your spirit kind of happy where you didn't even need outside permission to be happy. Before the world intruded on your happiness, didn't need uh, special stuff to play with, didn't need outside permission to be happy, that kind of happiness that reminded you of our Stevie Wonder record where it says, listen to the children's laughter remind you of how it used to be. Where the child's heart go face the worries of the day. Just happy like a little child. And I remained like that till about the time I went to school. I'm trying to go someplace because what I'm trying to set up here for you is how it came to be that I reached a state where I no longer felt that I was enough. Why I had to mask in the first place. I'm trying to get up under the disease for you for a second. If I was enough, why would I need to reach outside of myself for anything? To make me feel better. Somehow I got turned around and I left that state, that identic state where I was that happy little boy, and I bought into not being enough. I know exactly when it happened. I went to school, nice little interracial school, where I sat behind Mary Ann. 
Mary Ann had the most glorious golden pigtails I had ever seen. I never saw hair like that in my house. So I reached out to assess the texture of this golden, shimmering pigtail. Whereupon Mary Ann turned around and said, If you don't get your little nigger hands off me, you better. I said, Okay. Teacher, Mary Ann just used the word, I don't recall us going over. She said, What was it? I said, I really must have missed that lesson. She called, let me see, let me see, let me get it right. She called me a nigger. And the teacher said, the teacher said, oh, don't worry about that. In fact, you come from a long line of niggers. That's not important. I'm not saying it for shock value or anything like that. No, it wasn't important. I'm going someplace. What was important was I went home. And my mother, as was her habit, said, how was school? I said, wonderful. Would you learn something new? Absolutely. <laughs> she said, what'd you learn? I said, well, mom, I learned that I'm a nigger. You're a nigger too, mom. Matter of fact, we come from a long line of niggers. Now, now, here's the point, because early in life man makes habit, and later in life the habits make the man. Here's the hit. Here's the hit, because she went on to say, as if that wasn't enough, she went on to say, you, 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 it's time you learn the facts of life. Uh, we're black. Okay. And we're poor. All right. And this is a broken home. I didn't know home was broke. If you don't have any comparison, see, I'm not, I wasn't in the comparison yet. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I'm trying to take you someplace. I'm trying to show you how I started out happy, right? And then I got turned around because I had to learn that I wasn't enough. Okay, okay, stick with me. Now, right after that, what came was, if I'm not enough, then, then it, here's the birth of desire. What happens to you if you are at it and you pick up desire? That's a close cousin to craving. Huh? If one is too many and a thousand not enough and you turn me on to desire, it doesn't really, really matter what I desire. Whatever it is, I cannot get enough of it. My desire turns instantly into cravings. That's why they say, if you're an addict, look where you're going, because you tend to go where you're looking. What gets your attention gets you. Your energy flows where your attention goes. Right? So I don't know. I'm Look, look. At this point in life, I'm the undiagnosed addict. Let me stick right there for a second. It's a bitch being the undiagnosed addict. I wouldn't wish that on nobody. 
You running around traveling a thousand miles an hour with no brakes. And one direction is just as good as the next. Don't know where you're going, but you got to go. And you got to get there in record time. No, it's not funny being an undiagnosed addict because not only is your family baffled and confused, but so are you. Yes, yes, I know you can identify because I know my family used to ask me those really hard questions that I had no answer at all for because I was undiagnosed. They would ask me stuff like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, did it, did it ever happen to you? Did your own family say, what exactly is your major malfunction? We have never seen anybody like you in this family. You say one thing, you do another thing. You walk out with money, you come back dead broke. You say you're going to pay the bill, you come back talking about the car drove itself. What's wrong with you? And there you are talking about, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I was going to pay the gas and electric bill, and then I was uh, abracadabra drugs. I don't know where they came from. It just appeared. So I digress. Let me get back to my story. So, 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 uh, I bought into not being enough, right? And when that happened, when that happened, uh, patterns of behavior started. I started trying to, to do things to uh, address this new void. And the first thing I got addicted to was certainty. I became a straight-up sucker for a rush. If I could find a good feeling, I rode it till the wheels fell off. After getting addicted to certainty in an uncertain world, I picked up fantasy. I mean, listen, I'm talking about as a little boy, I was a few flapjacks short of a full stack. You, you feel me? A few french fries short of a happy meal as a little boy. I couldn't even watch cartoons. I'd get them twisted. Yes. Yes, that's right. Have I watched uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? I saw a little skeezer on a whole stroke <laughs> with seven little tricks. Sneezy and droopy and dopey. Goldilocks was a B&E artist. The Bear family did not invite her little happy ass in. She broke in, and in good little attic fashion, she start, She tried like the, first of all, she fucked up all the furniture. Not content with that, she tried the hot porridge and the cold porridge, and then finally she 
like make this part speedball, went upstairs and nodded out. And that's how they busted her. Yogi Bear was a rip-off artist with his little co-conspirator boo-boo. That shit they did was illegal. They're just running through the park stealing picnic baskets and stuff. Wiley Coyote gave new meaning to the second step. Newcomers, you're going to have to let that marinate a little bit. Some, what we call in here step work gotta take on added significance for you yeah my favorite character was Popeye I don't know maybe because he had them big attic looking arms like he couldn't get a good hit or something I don't know Has a little dope fiend buddy, Wimpy. His original dope fiend. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a few burgers today. Yeah. And look, look, look. Most of the cartoon, uh, 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 Popeye got beat down bad. But I believe he was an addict. Here's why. He would eventually surrender quietly. He'd go into surrender mode. And he'd tell you he's getting ready to go. He would say, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. <laughs> and just something very interesting would happen. He would reach into his stash. Yeah. And he'd bring out this silver tin, which contained a green leafy vegetative substance. And he would squeeze it. And then he would smoke that spinach. Oh, he smoked that shit. He smoked that spinach. He smoked that spinach. And he took him a nice spinach hit. He was good to go. There's going to be no more ass whippings. All of a sudden, he had self-acceptance on a deep level. He said, I am who I am. God damn it, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Huh? He turned into this, like, Rudolph Vaselino character. He turned a little skinny-ass olive oil and said, well, blow me down. What's going to do? Yeah. After the, after the fantasy, I picked up something that... that we're talking about how the mask gets created. I picked up something that's devastating for an addict. Devastating. Comparison. Ooh. Ooh, because you know we got two types of comparison. We got the one type where I compare myself to you, and then we got that real deep, insane type of comparison where I compare myself to this non-existent, blueprint, perfect, fabricated version of me. And then, I judge my emotions by the gap between me and perfect me. I'm getting ahead of myself. I picked up comparison. I remember, I, used, I came from a big family. We were poor, like my brother shared about earlier. So I'd go up the street and play with the Miller family. 
were no 13 brothers and sisters. It was just Billy and Gloria. <laughs> and Mr. and Mrs. Miller. And Mrs. Miller said, oh, boys, you've been playing mighty hard. Are you hungry? Said, Hell yeah, Miss Miller. Yeah. <laughs> she said, well, what would you like? Would you like a hamburger, cheeseburger, bologna and cheese, tuna fish? I said, get out of town. I ran home. I said, Ma, you won't believe what they have up the street. She said, what? So I said, choices. She said, boy, you know you need to stop. You know, good and goddamn well you got choices here. You can go back there and make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And if you don't like that, you can make a um, jelly with your peanut butter sandwich. Shit, I don't care. But here's the hit. In my household, we never had, we never knew anything about Peter Pan, Skippy, Jippy, none of that shit. We had a big, great, big silver oil tanker size thing of industrial shrimp. Peanut butter, whoa, with an oil slick on top. You had to jump start that shit like that, huh? To get it to some kind of spreadable consistency, huh? I'm talking that non-discriminating peanut butter. Didn't make a difference if your bread was white, whole wheat, pumpernickel, Italian, or rye. Guaranteed to fuck your bread up, peanut butter. Hey, listen, listen. Hey, I'm telling y'all some good shit. We had in my house, we had that ludicrous peanut butter that said, when I move, you move, just like that. <laughs> hey. Yeah. You don't like that? Go back there and hack yourself off a chunk of that cheese, that welfare cheese. In a great, 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 long, gray container. Hard cheese. Color your blouse. Just orange and shit. Need a machete to chop that shit. You know, forget about grilled cheeses. That shit wasn't melting. I don't care how hot you heated it up. Just get you a chunk of that cheese and gnaw on it. It's the best you could hope for. And I remember... I remember things got a little bit better, and I remember one day we looked up and, uh, um, ooh, looked up and uh, we had uh, matching furniture. Yeah, that was a big deal. And no sooner than the furniture people moved it in, my mother promptly proceeded to ziplock all the furniture in this sick-ass plastic. Nobody's natural ass has ever touched that fabric. This furniture has outlived whole generations. People have been born and died, and the furniture is still standing. It looks just like the day it was moved in. And then we got carpeting. We got carpeting. As soon as the carpet was laid, my mother shot a plastic runner straight down the middle. The whole house shrunk. She said, that's where I first learned to stay on the path. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I'm learning to love things and use people. Mm -hmm. So it was no small wonder that later on I'd be loving little glassine bags and little plastic vials and all of that kind of foolishness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm running around totally undiagnosed. You do a whole lot of shit. When you are undiagnosed, 
You do a whole lot of stuff when you're running around worshiping false idols. When you're a long way from God. When all your solutions are material in nature. And all you're doing is moving around the pieces on the material puzzle board of life. I was trying to be the best I could be. A family man, a father man, a spiritual man, all of that stuff, you know. Because I was raised like that. These clothes you wear on a certain day. These the certain day to go on a certain, certain building clothes. I'll fuck you up if you wear these clothes any other day. Other than to go to a certain building on a certain day. That's what these clothes are for. How dare you think about wearing them any other time. Mm-hmm. So we did all of that. I was trying to be the best I could. But at the same time, there was this guy created that I call him Attic Man. Attic Man was deep. Well, first it was Attic Boy, you know, because I was what you call a weekend warrior. I would talk that good Bobby Brown. This is my prerogative stuff. You understand? I work for this money, and if I want to do a little something-something on the weekend, that's my prerogative. And you make this money, then you can tell me what to do with it. But since I made it, hey, prophets got to play and saints got to sleep. Leave me alone. And we hung out like that. Me and Attic Boy were country crunch until he started growing up. How do I know he started growing up? Because he started sassing me. I'll never forget it was a Tuesday. And he jumped out. And I said, hey, it's Tuesday. He said, fuck that. <laughs> fuck a Tuesday. From now on, there's going to be some changes around here. Change number one, I'm jumping out any time I get good and goddamn ready. Change number two, don't ask me to, don't try to do nothing unless you ask me first. Change number three, we ain't in the holidays no more. Man, we ain't into going to the movies and stuff like that no more. I don't care if it's a funeral or wedding. Don't you try to do nothing until you check with me first. And another thing, all money is my money. Don't you try to spend nothing. I said, woo, we're talking about progression here. And I used to battle with, with Attic Man. Hola, Way Out Casters. Charlie back with you to introduce my recovery speaker, Clancy I. Clancy is a world-renowned AA speaker who is as relatable as he is funny. I listened to a ton of Clancy in early recovery, and this man thought like I thought, felt like I felt, and drank why I drank. This particular talk is so profound in large part due to how Clancy so adeptly and intimately describes how life began to feel what I would be sober without a solution. For me, the 12 steps. He describes how everything in his life begins to turn gray. His children, his wife, his job, his friends, until his whole life is devoid of color. Meanwhile, his spiteful creator has inserted a spring inside his chest that keeps getting tighter as the days get grayer. No doubt about it, that's as relatable as it gets for me in talking about the reality of my disease. As with anything in recovery, listen for the similarities and you will find them. Without further ado, Clancy I. My name is Clancy Immerslund, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm very glad to be here. I want to, uh, in kind of an honor of my dear friend and baby Tom, let me just take a moment. 
But I, uh, I must say, there's a lot of young people here. A lot of young people stood up. And there's always some old people in me, some young people like John and I and Tom. You know, we get up every morning and read the obits and see if we made it. Uh, and, uh, I had a special thrill the other day. I was reading the magazine because I was in World War II as a young man. And uh, they tell me that now something over 1,500 hey, World War II veterans die every day. So... <coughs> Treat me with love. But that's the incongruity of AA because it's a strange place, you know. There's a, you, some old guy will get up there and say, I stayed drunk around the clock for 40 years. As if to say to the little snots in the front row, I've been around longer than you've been alive. And they don't know the little snots are thinking, you can't be much of an alcoholic if you lasted 40 years, you old son of a bitch. You know? And it turns out it isn't how long you drank, even though it has nothing to do with it. It's something that makes an alcoholic is something that none of us seem to know very easily. It takes a hard time to find out. If you don't find it out, hey, it doesn't make sense. I came to my first day meeting a great many years ago, and I was uh, just out of the University of Wisconsin. I was back from being in the war. In the war, I'd learned to drink a little bit, and I loved drinking. It just, I did very great in college and drank a lot. And went out in the world, became a sports writer, and drank a lot. But I had one little problem: is that I uh, I seem to drink a little too much sometimes, more than I plan to, and uh, I would act bizarrely. That was the term they used for me. And so somebody says, "I suggest I go to Alcoholics Anonymous." So I went to my first AA meeting. I'm sure I felt something like way some of the newcomers here, except I was in a town where there's only eight people sitting around a table, eight fat old guys. One guy says, what the hell are you doing here? I thought, God, that's a wonderful introduction. I now know why I said it, because I was 22. I looked much younger, and there wasn't anybody in that state under 40 years old in AA. And so it was like some kid 12 years old coming in and saying, I think I'm an alcoholic. Or do you? I think you have a broken nose. (laughs) Uh, But they let me sit around and listen to them and... It doesn't take long if you're new to know about AA. Easy. Alcoholics are people whose problem is alcohol, obviously, and they uh, drink too much, they get in trouble, and they come to AA and admit their problem is alcohol, which gives them a sense of relief, apparently. Then, apparently, they return to God. Then they show their gratitude by helping others. And it's just kind of a dreary, gray tunnel, it looks like. And uh, everybody has to f- confront that. But it doesn't take long to learn about A. You don't know what the hell is to study around here. And so I uh, I learned that in my first A meeting. And I learned it thereafter. I moved to a different city where I was an executive of the company. And I started drinking too much. And they told me that you're going you're gonna to stop drinking. We're going to have to let you go. And I had a great idea. I said, uh, oh, Mr. Carlson, you know, I'm, I got drinking in the war overseas. <laughs> And I said, but they've got this new thing downtown called Alcoholics Anonymous. Would you put me on a paid leave of absence and I'll go down there and get uh, sobered up and quit drinking and be okay? He said, yeah, that'll be very fine. Because nobody knew much about it. It was very mysterious then. So I went down and sat in some meetings in that city and different faces but the same old pukes, you know. <laughs> I drank lots, by the way. And I could see that I was never going to stay sober with these jerks because my problem wasn't drinking. My problem was Drinking provided what comfort I had. 
my job was trying to find a way not to drink too much. And so I, uh, I looked for another job and found it. I didn't go back to that company. And I did that for years. I would work in a company and I could write very well. I had very good things happen to me. And I uh, would get in trouble and they'd give me, you have to stop your drinking. I'd go to AA for a while and uh, find another job. And one of the nice things about it in those days is you, you could go home and tell your wife, well, dear, I've gone back to AA. Wonderful. Wonderful. I think it'll do wonders for you, darling. What do they want you to do? Well, they want me to taper off. <laughs> and there wasn't any Al-Anon then to screw it up for everybody. <clears throat> Since the birth of Al-Anon, there's never been a moment's rest for anybody anywhere. Now they don't want you to taper off. Just wants to stop entirely. We know it's a program of absolute being sober. We have the same steps. We have the same book. I release you, you son of a bitch. But I did that, and I went to AA, and I, and I, it's a funny thing, you know, when I first came to AA, I had a sponsor briefly who was, gave up on me quickly, but he had me read the book, and I read the book Alcoholics Anonymous, as I'm sure somebody would ask you to do, and uh, they, they said it's a badly written book. It is not a badly written book. It's a, it's a dull book is what it is. It doesn't ever get anywhere, and I read it, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a writer on the way to becoming a successful writer. It is a nice place, but uh, I like things that have some action. Do this! Take this action! Blah, 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 blah. And you read that book, and you... If you are thorough at this stage of your development... <laughs> I just gave up on the damn book. But I went to AA, and uh, my problem with Alcoholics Anonymous always was this. These other people had terrible drinking problems, and they got sober, they felt better. I had, I had a need for alcohol to, because I was imbalanced somehow inside of me, and I needed something to put me in balance and make me feel good. And my problem always was that I couldn't watch it. I thought about that later when I was, many years later when I came to A again and uh, stayed around for a while. And I read the book again, and I read something in there I didn't even recall reading. It really is the story of my life. And if you're new here tonight, it's the story of your life, although you may not even recognize it. At the beginning of chapter 3, there's a page or two that talks a little bit about we alcoholics. And they talk about what we have in common. And you can read right through that and never identify a thing until you stop and think what it's saying. There's one thing in there that seems to embrace alcoholics of our type. And that is somewhere along the line... We all have had to voluntarily or involuntarily accept the obsession that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking. It says the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity and death. See, why would that be? But we all do it. And the, they talk, I want to talk about how we fight the term alcoholic. I suppose the reason I fight the term alcoholic is because not only it's degrading, but that means I can't drink. And i got to find a way to drink a little, a little something to get me over the hump. Yeah. And to talk about another thing that happens, dreadful occasional brief recoveries, always followed by a worse relapse. 
And we've all had this little recovery. So I got it together now. I got to remember to eat before I go out. That's it. <laughs> Which just gives you more to puke later, it turns out. And you keep fighting it, and you reach, there's a one delicate little phrase in there that is just peachy. I wish I'd have written it. Reach a stage of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I remember reading that thing. That's how drunk these poor people get. But that isn't what that means at all. That's how you feel after you're sober again. And people want some explanations for your behavior, and you haven't got them. The correct answer is, Leave me alone, God damn it. Because I don't know any, any more about it than you do. All I know is that you don't understand. You think my problem is alcohol, but it isn't. I Alcoholics can stop drinking. Can't stop drinking. They all say, well, once I start drinking, I, just, I can stop, stop drinking. For special occasions, all sorts of things. In the mid-1950s, <clears throat> I was going through a bad pattern there for, I'd get a certain stage of drinking and I'd, I'd have to go out and counsel police officers. <laughs> Bad move. I start going to jail quite often. Not for a long time, not like felons like Johnny Harris, but <laughs> decent citizens who were misunderstood. And uh, I got so I could get up in the morning, go home, take a shower, and go to work. I mean, I really handled it well. And one night, <clears throat> I came... Came out of one morning, I came out of jail in the morning, and uh, I didn't go that much, but once every couple of weeks or so. And one of my neighbors was there. I said, You shouldn't have come down here. This, you know, I got that damn cop. He really abused me. I got his badge number. I'm going to get his job. He said, I don't know about that. He said, But uh, while you're out there, we couldn't find you last night, and your little son died, and we couldn't find you. And it just about killed me because I had a bunch of little girls and one little boy, and he was the apple of my eye, I'll tell you. And I almost couldn't stand it. We took him up to Wisconsin and buried him in his grandmother's foot of his grandmother's grave. And I put my hand in his little casket. I said, John Emerson, this will never happen again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I wouldn't have let, let it happen for the world. And I came back and I quit drinking. I didn't go to AA because that doesn't help. I quit drinking. I would come home after work at night, have dinner with my kids. First time in a long time. Night after night, I'd go home and eat dinner, and after we didn't, we'd work in the homework, or I'd take it for a little ride. Just wonderful. And uh, the one problem I always had with drinking was this. I could always stop. But after a day or two, someone seems to sneak into my bedroom and put an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day, they start to tighten it. And it doesn't come out as, I need drink. It comes out as... Just a little restlessness, a little irritability, a little tired of the daily sermon of what I did the last time I was drunk. Get off it! Little by little, watching whatever technicolor there is in my life, gray, gray, go back to that gray, and the job gets gray, and the people get gray, and my kids get gray, and it's just my whole life is gray. And I've spent thousands of dollars in psychoanalysis to try to find a way to break that pattern. And I did a lot of things, but I'll tell you how you break that pattern, in case you don't know. Have a drink. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jesus. But then you must remember to say, I'll watch it this time. Not knowing that you can't watch it. But I, this time it didn't happen. My kids and I were getting along good. 
Every meal would say a little prayer for baby John, like he was uh, with us. And everything was just going fine. Best two or three weeks I'd had for a long time. And then one night somebody snuck into my bedroom and put an invisible spring in my gut. And the next morning I got up and <laughs> just a little irritable. I was a little tired about going to work. I didn't feel like going to work today. I didn't feel like taking the crap from those people and putting up with their nonsense. And, but I did. And uh, the next day it was a little bit worse, a little more intense. I couldn't sleep very well last night. I thought, why in the hell? Now I'm a Norwegian Lutheran. I was born, raised, conceived, uh, catechized and confirmed in the church. And I did, I was a good boy and I got older, I'd start sinning, but I mean, I'd been a very good. And it suddenly struck me why my son was died, why he'd killed. This Norwegian Lutheran God, this punishing son of a bitch, had taken my little boy who never committed a sin in his life and killed him to punish me. Well, screw you, God! You'll get me in hell, but you won't get me before that! Screw ya! And that was the end of that. But unfortunately, the days kept going. And every day was getting awfully bad. And I, uh, I really needed some relief badly. But when you've taken a vow on your son's casket, you can't do that. And it just went on and on and on. And one day I got up and my wife had taken the children to church. And I just couldn't stand another day of this. And I pulled my car in the garage and hooked up hose in the exhaust pipe and Turned the motor and went to sleep and died. Just crazed. Incidentally, that was 54 years ago today. Anniversary time. Can you bring another cake, Tom? <laughs> Upside down, this one. But I, uh, and a neighbor next door happened to, be, happened to drink breakfast, happened to a cup of coffee, and saw me go in there and didn't come out, and he heard the motor running, so we wandered over, finding if I was all right, and he found me dead in the car. And he pulled me out and they beat on my chest and breathed in my mouth and rushed me to the hospital and oxygenated me, worked on me. And then they evaluated me and determined I was seriously mentally ill and committed me to the state insane asylum for an indefinite period. Now that's the go away and away when I go. When I stop drinking, folks, that's no answer in my life. Maybe some people, but not mine. And I went to this nut house in Big Spring. And I was there a couple weeks. I started to feel better, actually, because, you know, uh, I was protected. I didn't realize it, but there was no there was no pressure on me at all. Protected. The only thing I had a little trouble sleeping. I don't know if you've ever been to a state mental hospital, but every time you just doze off somewhere, you hear ah! <laughs> it keeps you alert. I'll tell you. But what saved me? Some big boob of a counselor said, "Better not ever try to escape from here, boy." Escape Proof Hospital. I said, oh, is that so? <laughs> Took me a few days. I found a way to get through a door, down a corridor, through another door, across the yard, and over the fence. And I was gone. And uh, when I got out, I suddenly realized what the guy told me was true. It is true. It's an Escape Proof Hospital. But you don't know until you get out. I don't know if you've ever been in West Texas, but they can see you running for three days. <laughs> If you like to catch a fool in your white bathrobe, just. <laughs> well, there goes that little Yankee son of a bitch now. <laughs> and 
they snatched me back and gave me a couple months of electric shock for that run. And after that, you never run much at all. You, What's your name, boy? I don't know. Check with the desk. <laughs> then in the early December, I started to come out of that. And uh, they noticed on my record that I had done the staging and direction of a grand opera at the University of Texas that spring. as one of my sidelights. So they asked me if I'd like to t- direct the Christmas pageant. So I directed the big spring Christmas pageant that year. Not very complex. The, the big job was trying to keep the three wise men off the Virgin Mary, if you possibly could. <laughs> we just want to worship her, Clancy. <laughs> and the next year, they put in an experimental Alcoholics Anonymous ward in that hospital. I pretended to be an alcoholic because I knew what they wanted, and I got out. In fact, I got to be their prize pupil. They would send me out to Odessa and Midland and towns like that to talk at their AA meetings. Attendant would come with me to friends. I'm here tonight on behalf of my fellow patients at Big Spring State Hospital. Folks such as you have made it possible. It's as though we were going across a vast desert of alcoholism. We came to the tall green hills of sobriety, but they were too steep for our weary legs. We didn't know what to do, but folks such as you pointed out 12 golden stairs, one after another that we can climb. And now as we approach the top of our hill of sobriety, prepare ourselves to return to our homes throughout West Texas, we wanted to tell you that God bless you and your wonderful work. You don't know what you've done. Thank you. <laughs> Laugh got me out of the Texas nuthouse. And I never had another drink. Until I ran out of Thorazine. <laughs> well, but my problem was, I know, I mean, I can't stop drinking, and yet I can't continue drinking. That is the great damned if you do and damned if you don't. Try new techniques. Eat. In fact, at the end of that chapter 3, there's an interesting, I mean, that little section of chapter 3, there's a little paragraph that just nails it. Talks about some of us have tried to try and from one kind of drink to another, from scotch to brandy, say. Drinking beer only, taking sp- physical exercise, drinking only natural wines, reading spiritual literature, taking trips, not taking trips, swearing off with or without a solemn, a whole bunch of things. I met for a sober while I read that again, I thought, God, I've tried every one of those things except one. I never tried not taking a trip. Uh, <laughs> When the heat's on, I move it out. Only cowards stay and face the consequences. But I, it was just on and on. And I came out of that hospital and I convinced people I'd learned my lesson. One of the things, I had to go to an AA meeting once a week, which I did. And I kept taking my uh, medication so I didn't notice the absence of alcohol very much. You know. I'm not drinking at all. <laughs> I remember the night of my anniversary of my end of September 22nd, 1967. I was standing in Juarez waiting for midnight. Huh? That was a year later, goof. 57. That's what I said. What? Okay. 
Don't ever argue with the guy that's got the mic. <laughs> You'll learn that someday, Curly. Anyway, the, I stood in Juarez and waiting for midnight, 12 o'clock, rum and coke. Oh, God, that was good. And I went home. I didn't get drunk. And uh, the next morning I realized I was kind of had a whip now, perhaps. And that afternoon I had dinner that night, uh, the next night, and had a couple cocktails with dinner. Went to the A meeting to get my chip. <laughs> Remember the man said, uh, Clancy, you've been drinking? I said, yes, I had a couple cocktails with dinner. Why? He said, well, this is supposed to be for being sober for a year. I said, I was sober a year. Give me the goddamn chip. <laughs> and uh, punished them and never went back because I didn't need them anymore. And then I was looking pretty good. I got a job in da Dallas at the biggest, largest advertising agency in the South. Boy, this is my big chance now. I've learned my lesson. And I was working on, if you're old, you remember them, the Elsie Nelmaraz for the Borden Company and uh, some of the others, and I was under a lot of pressure. I realized I could drink safely now. I would stop and drink, and pretty soon I was drinking more and more, and pretty soon I was drunk, and pretty soon they were calling me in again, and just, I couldn't believe it. I was trying to try everything. Just so much pressure. And uh, they uh, finally called me one morning and said, you know, Clancy, give me the car keys. We're firing you. You cost us a big account by not showing up where you were supposed to be last night, not to be found anywhere. Turned out later you were drunk somewhere. You've cost us that account. And uh, he said, I'm going to tell you something. I called your wife this morning, and I told her that you were being fired, and if she was smart, she'd get away from you and take the children. He said, I'm going to make it my business to see that you never work in advertising again. It's kind of bad to go with your morning hangover. So I got my severance check, and I drank for a couple days because I realized I'd have to go on the wagon probably. But by that time, my wife, I got home, my wife had taken, left, taken the children, sold the furniture, left my clothes on the front porch. I thought, isn't that just like them? One little mistake, and they turn on you. <laughs> but I knew I had to get out of Texas because I was signed out of the state hospital by my wife. That's the way they did it then. Your, your family could sign you in. And they could sign you out. I was signed out to my wife. And all she ever had to do was pick up the phone and say, I don't want him anymore. Come and get him. And they come and get you. That makes for tough around the house. You know. Are you going to take this garbage out? Yes, I am. <laughs> so I knew how to get out of town. I had no car. A guy told me a couple weeks before that he... He was trying to get a car moved to Los Angeles. Did I know anybody that would drive a car from her? No, I don't think so. But that morning I did. Yes, I do. And I said, I'll drive it out. He said, well, how about your big job? I said, oh, I quit them. I don't like them. They're all phonies. And I uh, got in the car, and the first night I got as far as El Paso, where I was big in Juarez, stood in the bar of the Chinese palace, drinking interminable amounts of rum and singing my little song, Yo soy el maestro de los locos en Chihuahua. <laughs> and all my fans going, gringo, gringo. <clears throat> Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. 
If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.